Welcome to Discourse, an original GBC podcast that explores multiple perspectives to think deeply and connect honestly with each other. I'm Anne Song. And I'm Sarika Narayan Welcome to a very special episode of Discourse. Today's episode is actually our live presentation, which we recorded at CALL, which is the College Association of Language and Literacy Conference. It was hosted at George Brown this year on June 1st and 2nd, and the theme of the conference was Divergent Thinking in the Communications Classroom. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to share our project with you. On the agenda, we will be discussing the research and rationale that underpins our podcast assignment, as well as some of the successes and challenges that we've seen so far. And can you get us started with uh, discussing what do we do and why do we do it? Absolutely. Uh, so we're educators here at George Brown College. And like many of us in the audience, I believe, uh, we are all communications instructors. And so our focus is around reading and writing skills. However, it's not just a composition course. Uh, we think it's really important that we ensure that our curriculum is culturally relevant and personally meaningful to our students. That is to say, we want our curriculum to reflect the diversity of our students' identities, and we want to explore topics that we know our students are going to be navigating in their extracurricular lives. Uh, we keep our curriculum relevant and personally meaningful as we choose and curate very risky essays. And so this definition of risk is something that we borrowed from Jonathan Franzen in his 2016 Best American Essays collection that he curated. And in the introduction, he says something like this. My main criterion in selecting this year's essays was whether an author had taken a risk. And so for Jonathan Franzen, risk here means that the essay has to stem from something that is personally meaningful to the writer. It has to be personal because when it's personal and it matters to them in a personal level, when they put their writing out there, they're making themselves vulnerable to criticism, vulnerable to even shame. So we want to extend this definition of risk because this is something that you know, this is how we curate our papers too when we are selecting readings for our students. Uh, to extend Franzen's definition, we want essays that are personally meaningful, but to be done with courage and humility. So I'll explain what that means. These are essays that recognize that there are multiple perspectives on a topic and on an issue. So these perspectives may even be conflicting to one's own view. Uh, in spite of that, we want to look at writers who take a stand with courage and conviction and insert themselves into this conversation, all the while being aware and cognizant of the fact that they may be wrong, they may be criticized, they may be challenged, and they may be misunderstood. That's the intellectual humility aspect there. And risky essays like, uh, like these are important, we believe, because they drive the conversation forward. So let's take a look at some of those titles. Absolutely, so to give some context, I primarily teach in the culinary, hospitality, hotel management uh, department, and uh, Anne is with fashion students. So the essays that we picked and that we teach in the classroom reflect our students' industrial issues. To begin, we've got Solel Ho's Craving the Other, One Woman's Beef with Cultural Appropriation. We also have a friend of the podcast, Zoe Tennant's Breaking Bread, Bannock's Contentious Place in Aboriginal Cuisine from the Walrus. We also have Jenny Zong's On Blonde Girls in Chong Sam's, Hadia Roderick's Very Honest Essay, Dating While Black, which is also from The Walrus. We have Aziz Ansari's New York Times piece, Acting, Race, and Hollywood. 
And of course, Desmond Cole's Toronto life piece, The Skin I'm In, I've been interrogated by the police more than 50 times, all because I'm black. So this is exactly what we mean by culturally relevant curriculum. These are essays that reflect our students, their mm -hmm. interests, their desires to navigate the world, to make sense of their feelings. And Anne and I made a great effort to make sure that our authors are writers of color, because often those are marginalized voices that are silenced and pushed to the side. Yeah, and the whole reason we um, choose these risky essays is ultimately because we want our students to become risk takers too. Right, the quote that we always share with our students, um, it's a Stephen King quote uh, from his text on writing where he says, to be a writer you must do two things above all else, read a lot and write a lot. So the student risk takers that we're looking at, we want student writers to write about what matters to them. So that's the personal aspect. We want writers who are aware of the multiple perspectives around them on this topic and can dialogue with them. We want students, to, in spite of this, to take a stand, to insert themselves, to construct an authoritative voice using rhetorical conventions and strategies in order to authentically connect with their audience. So we want this to impact their writing as well. So how did this play out in real life? The reality was we had some really great, kind, compassionate, productive conversations. One of the biggest challenges that we faced though were uh, facilitating prickly conversations that were peppered with these microaggressions. On the one hand, as an instructor, we don't want to condone racism and discrimination and sexism. On the other hand, we don't want to shut down the conversation. So what exactly are microaggressions if we're not totally sure? Um, it has been defined as the quote, everyday encounters of subtle discrimination that people of various marginalized groups experience throughout their lives. It's a very technical uh, definition. So what does that actually sound like? Here's a, a brief snippet of some of the things that we've encountered in the classroom. I don't see color, which I interpret as you don't see me. There's only one race. Absolutely, I'm there too. However, there are people in this world who have not been made to feel that they are a part of that one race. Race is a construct. I'm there too, I get it. However, there's a lived reality. It's my opinion if I don't like someone. This is probably one of the most toxic microaggressions we have encountered in the classroom because number one, it completely shuts down the conversation. Number two, it completely invalidates the traumas and lived realities of marginalized groups. Number three, it does not even address systemic uh, oppression. Now, attitudes in the classroom were particularly heightened when we brought in the current event of the uh, racist party that was held by Queen's University students off campus. Now, as you can see, I'm calling it racist because the theme of the party was to come dressed up as a race. Uh, we took our time to uh, also visit uh, some of the commentary that's coming from the students. How did they feel about the campus culture after the, after the party was being held? And these, again, were some of the microaggressions that we encountered. Quote, isn't the point of Halloween to dress up as something ridiculous? People are offended by everything these days. They're just having fun. I can do whatever I want in my own house. And you're being paranoid. So microaggressions, we know, are seemingly innocuous. They are unintentional. They are unconscious. I know. I also know, as a person of color, that they are being felt they are messages that are being received, interpreted, and internalized in very dangerous ways. 
some of the messages that they're sending out are, you're all the same, you're abnormal, you don't belong, and you're intellectually inferior. So what I mean by that are the quotes like, wow, you're really articulate for a, a blank person. What's internalized, what's interpreted is, I'm not trusted, I'm powerless, I'm invisible. I need to be two people at once. I need to be part of my culture, and I need to be able to navigate mainstream culture. semester, Anne and I met up to decompress about these difficult discussions we were having and research essays that at the end of the semester were essentially very, um, they were written by inexperienced insecure writers because they were cherry picking evidence. They were constructing these very flimsily defended arguments and we were disheartened. Do you remember? And then you started floating this idea of podcasts. Yeah, we were absolutely discouraged after a really rough semester of, of these kinds of uh, toxic conversations and we just didn't know what to do to help facilitate civil discourse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the more I got to think about it, I realized, you know, if we want our students to take a risk and if we want our students to think divergently, we need to take a risk and we need to think divergently too. We needed a completely different platform, something that was different from the classroom discussion, classroom debate, and even the traditional essay. Uh, altogether new in order to facilitate these discourse skills, but also to encourage better writing and better research skills. Because as we saw, if students, students who cannot discourse in verbal dialogue, that translated directly into poor research and poor writing because like Sturika mentioned, they were invalidating perspectives and evidence pieces that did not agree with their views. They were cherry picking. They did not know how to connect with their audience. They did not know how to build credibility. So one of the things that Sturika and I, I mean, we're colleagues, we're friends, but we always share our favorite podcasts with one another. Um, and I think that morning when I met up with you, I was listening to a podcast and the idea uh, came up. So some of the podcasts we enjoy, Call Your Girlfriend, fantastic podcast, This American Life, you probably know Invisibilia, Startup, Freakonomics Radio, and The Re. So these are some of the podcasts that Sarik and I enjoy, and I'm sure there's tons more that you also tune into as well, and I'm sure our students tune into as well. What we love so much about podcasts is that, first of all, it's a medium where the message can be anything you want it to be. It can be a talk show, it can be a narrative, it can be a whodunit, it can be investigative journalism. Secondly, podcasts are very easy to use and access. Uh, simple download onto your desktop or your mobile device or your mp3 player. You can listen to it wherever you are and whenever you want. Uh, it's very easy to access. And so I got to thinking, why not ask our students to create a podcast for us? And I was totally on board with this. I mean, if we're going to offer students culturally relevant curriculum, why not offer a culturally relevant form, mm -hmm. right? Our students, a lot of them will protest and say, I'm not a digital native, don't call me that. But they are media saturated. And whether they like it or not, they're Snapchatting and they're talking into their phone. So why not harness that energy? Yeah, and I think it was really important that we didn't, this wasn't, I didn't want it to be tech for tech's sake. 
it wasn't just for the sake of bringing in technology into the classroom. We really wanted to bring the podcast into our class as a powerful pedagogical tool that will have direct impact in active citizenship, uh, civil discourse, uh, and as well as their writing. We really wanted it to have an impact in composition skills. Okay, and so what did the assignment actually look like? Let's take a look. So the assignment itself, just to give you a little bit of background, what we do for our first major assignment um, is we give students uh, a range of themes. So some of these themes, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, are controversial topics, including things like culture appropriation of food, culture appropriation in fashion, because we teach a lot of fashion design students as well, uh, the criminalization of uh, black men, uh, racism in online dating and the like. So we'll have all sorts of themes and for each theme we assign and we curate two risky essays. So we assign our students uh, essays that they can select from. And after they select these essays, they are going to create a 10 minute podcast for us. And I'm just gonna show you, I'll just read, I know it's a little bit hard to see, so I'll read off what we have there. In groups of two or three, create a 10 minute podcast for discourse, a podcast that explores multiple perspectives to think deeply and connect honestly with each other. During this episode, discourse with your group members, you're going to answer three questions. Number one, why is this theme important? Number two, which of the two essays made a more convincing argument and did more justice to the theme because of what the author said and how they made their points? So here we're asking our students to evaluate and critique the readings. Number three, respond to an assigned critical thinking question for your theme. Convince your group as well as the audience of your podcast why your views are reasonable, rational, and worthy of consideration. So depending on the theme that they selected, we had a different question. So do you remember, Sarika, the question we had for cultural appropriation? Yeah, so for our uh, chef students, the question we posed to them was, to what extent is using ingredients that are outside of your cultural norm, is that necessarily appropriation or when does appreciation begin? Yeah, so questions like these, th this is their opportunity then to insert their own opinions and the requirement was for them to back it up and support it through evidence, through evidence from the two readings that they selected or from another source. So here they have an opportunity to share their views. So it wasn't required for them to um, you know, resolve these issues, but the requirement was to discuss them uh, and we specifically mentioned on this uh, assignment there, we mentioned that even though you don't necessarily agree, it's important that you follow the social skills that we've required of you, such as suspending judgment, appreciating diverse perspectives, uh, learning to listen to one another. Simple things like that that are may seem natural to us, we had to explicitly uh, show our students and teach it to our students. There is a written component that comes with this, if you're wondering. Uh, we're not gonna go into too much right now. We're gonna focus on the 10 minute podcast and then we'll revisit. But there is a written component that follows the podcast, same questions, but they had to answer it in formal academic writing. Yeah, and so just one thing that I do wanna draw everyone's attention to is the actual discourse logo. And I do that because what this assignment compelled us to do as instructors is create a publication, mm -hmm. a podcast, a theme, a brand, and an image that our students had to produce a product for. What I'm trying to say here is we created an audience for them. And that is the difference. 
Now they are using the right type of tone, the type of style, the type of strategies that they need to target their audience and creating unified on theme, on brand messages. Mm -hmm. So let's take a look at the actual tech that we required of them. We'll just play it so you can see what this looks like. We've done a lot of research looking for the best app possible to do this. And uh, we've decided that this app here, which is called Opinion, um, it's an app that allows them to record, edit, and produce all in one platform. So let's take a look and then we'll explain. Opinion makes podcasting easy and human. Just hit record and open your heart. Trim your clips in an instant. Rearrange them using drag and drop. Get opinion today from the App Store. Super easy and it's free. (laughs) So the first 10 minutes, free. And if you want to record more than 10 minutes, that's when you have to purchase the app. Uh, because we, we don't want our t- podcast to be more than 10 minutes, <laughs> especially because you're going to have to listen to all of them and to evaluate it. So because we capped it at 10 minutes, this worked perfectly for us. All they had to do is then to download it as a WAVE or an M4A file onto their Google Drive, and then you can figure out how you would like for them to submit. You can ask them to email you. You can ask if you share some sort of virtual space with them. Like we use Padlet, which is like a, a virtual bulletin board where students can post, or they can upload onto SoundCloud and then send you the link. Uh, so, so again, super easy and free. Yeah, and we're not just saying super easy, we actually did it. So that's the big thing with assignments, right? You have to sit down and actually write the essay to know that it's doable. So we have produced five to s- five or six episodes now mm-hmm. um, for Discourse to model for our students exactly what we mean by academic discussion. And they saw, wow, this is actually doable. We did it in a, in a couple weeks, but I mean, we were intense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's take a look at some of the rationale, uh, the rationales for this. What were we exactly hoping that this 10-minute podcast would achieve? How would this solve some of the problems that we were seeing in the classroom discussion as well as in their writing? Uh, we thought podcasting would encourage uh, greater civil discourse and civic engagement outside the classroom. By inside the classroom, authentic civil discourse, we defined it as looking like these qualities. Humility, to know that there are limits to your own knowledge. The courage to look at the multiple perspectives and insert yourself into that discussion. The curiosity to learn about why do you think the way you think. And the open-mindedness to suspend your judgment and listen to those opposing arguments, those opposing perspectives. The integrity to stand by what you believe in, but also the empathy to stand in another person's shoes. Now, we have also found through research that by discussing social issues in the classroom, we can see greater levels of civic engagement outside the classroom. So levels of political efficacy have been shown to go up, social awareness goes up, discussion about social issues between friends and family goes up, and a sense of belonging to one's community. So no longer feeling isolated and alienated as if no one understands you. Now, I know that we are not the first people to obviously talk about and advocate for the the value of discussion. Um, Dr. Keeter from the American Psychological Association actually does say, before we can tackle an issue like the lack of diversity in the media, we have to talk about these difficult discussions about discrimination. 
first. And that is when we can have greater levels of diversity, creativity, innovation, and productivity in our society, democracy. Now, we also understand, though, that social skills don't come naturally to us. No, they don't. And we cannot assume that students <clears throat> will possess these skills or that they will naturally develop these skills either. It was really important for us in our assignment to explicitly name these skills and model it for them and to tell them we're going to look for these things. So some of these social skills include listening carefully to paraphrase one another, appreciating diverse perspectives, suspending judgment even though you don't immediately agree with someone, uh, disagreeing agreeably, inserting your own voice, expressing ideas clearly, logically and confidently, and asking probing questions to drive the conversation forward. Now in order to help our students to uh, actually enact and practice these skills, we provided them with conversation stems so they could structure their dialogue. So for example, we'll model this for you and this is how we got our students to do it too on the podcast as well as during classroom discussions as practice. Uh, so for example, how might you say, Sarika, uh, how might you ensure that you understood my point? So Anne, if I understood you correctly, are you saying that blank? <laughs> okay, so here we have an example of paraphrasing the other person to make sure that you accurately understood them. How about showing appreciation for a diverse perspective? Thank you for sharing your point about blank. It's really interesting because blank. So here she's showing curiosity of other person's perspective and being humble of her own limitations. How might you suspend judgment even though you don't agree with me? And I can't agree with your point about blank because blank, but I can appreciate why you think that way. Okay, so here we have a conversation stem where we give a students the opportunity to talk through their frustrations and their misunderstandings. And our goal with these conversation stems is hopefully they can use this in the classroom as well as on the podcast uh, to help negotiate and reconcile with diverse perspectives. Yeah, we do truly believe that students have it in their hearts, but they may feel socially awkward to verbalize them. So the stems are really necessary. Now, some of you I'm sure are wondering, how do you mark social skills? Social skills are not part of our course outcomes. However, in order to write and respond verbally and create a logically coherent, unified, analytically sound, valid response, you have to have the social skills to get there. So we are still marking the end response However, we want to foster the social skills to get to the best end response. Yeah, so in many ways, the social skills were, you could think of it as a success criteria. This is, these are the skills they needed in order to respond in the ways that we were, uh, the unified coherent responses we were looking for. And um, how was the podcast meant to encourage more authentic civil discourse on the research essays? Yeah, so this is the, the second major piece and the, really for me the main piece because like we we're saying earlier, uh, we were seeing problems in their research and their writing. So podcasting for risk-taking writing. Um, it's really important that we position our podcast in, in early early stages of the course. Uh, as a pre, you could think of it as a pre-writing tool because there is a direct, and we've seen, and other research has, researchers have seen a direct impact between podcasting and uh, in an oral audio performance uh, back to writing. So we're not the first ones to look at this. Uh, we have Lee A. Jones to credit. In 2010, she published a piece called Podcasting and Performativity, Multimodal Invention in an Advanced Writing Class. Uh, she, Jones is um, 
an educator in the States, and she has actually seen the, the positive influence between podcasting and writing. So just to explain to you uh, how, uh, I'll explain to you her argument. She argues that there is something unique about the oral performance involved in podcasting. There's something unique about the theatricality and the role playing involved in podcasting. So pulling from performance studies, she says, because our students know that they are in front of a listening audience, they develop a very keen and very deep awareness of audience. And a heightened sense of awareness of audience that is absolutely different and altogether new from the kind of awareness students may have when they simply have to write a piece. So uh, when they're thinking of readers, they're not thinking about the audience in the same way when they're thinking of a theater performance or oral performance with their audience. And once they start developing a deep sense of awareness in this way, they start asking, okay, so what is the best way to communicate with this audience? So now they're thinking, what are the best rhetorical strategies and best rhetorical conventions that I can use to com effectively communicate with this audience, to get them on my side, to invite them into my personal and meaningful space? And Jones's point is this, if you do this as a pre-writing tool before you do any other major writing, these enduring understandings and this awareness of audience transfers over into their writing. And it better prepares them to be the kind of writers we want, risk-taking writers who know how to respect other perspectives, include evidence from a balanced point of view and fair-minded research. They're building credibility and authority in their text. Right, and it's this exact lack of awareness of audience and inability to imagine, you know, the worst type of audience, a skeptical audience. Mm -hmm. That's when the essays start to suffer because now they lack urgency and they lack purpose. Exactly. I think because it forces them to think about the audience in such a conscious and deliberate way that it transforms their writing ultimately. And this is probably why we even ask students to read their essays out loud when they're editing, right? We want to hear for that. Yeah. And our project I think is even more unique because we're asking for this reflection in a in a very multi-layered way because they're because this is a group project they're thinking of the immediate audience members in front of them their group members but they're also doubly aware of the audience afterwards once a podcast is done and in terms of construction of rhetorical conventions and strategies they are being asked to uh, take apart and assess and critique other people's writing all the while thinking about what are the best strategies I need to use to communicate with this audience at the other end. So in so many layers, our students are thinking about in a very conscious way, uh, audience and the construction of text. Absolutely, and just to add to the long-term effects, the benefits on writing, podcasting is very similar to the writing process that we privilege and value they still have to outline in the same way that they have to brainstorm. They still have to record and then listen to themselves. And then just like the editing and revision stage, they have to edit and re-record before they publish their episode. So quotation from Jones before we move on. Um, she says here, podcasting can lead writers to take more risks during the invention process and become more confident about their abilities to perform research and engage in the revision of their ideas. So going back to our earlier point about risk taking, I think Jones here definitely echoes of Franzen in saying what we're trying to say about the kind of risk-taking students that we like to see. Absolutely, and just to pick up on the confidence level, I don't know if anyone came to Olga's presentation yesterday, but she had three great students come in, and one of the students presented about 
the introverted student. Mm. And what sets podcasting apart from the debate, for instance, or the classical class discussion, is that it's not privileging the one speaker in the classroom who can be more confident and vocal, but may not be saying much of substance. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Now students, all students, have the time and the space and the semi-privacy to really rehearse their ideas and contemplate and solidify them. Right. And this process of recording and re-recording, again, heightens this awareness of audience. There's one more thing that we were hoping that podcasting addresses, and that's collaboration skills. Absolutely. I know that uh, we're in college, and it is very driven by essential employability skills. And so, of course, we are also mindful of this. Now, we know that one of the essential employability skills is the ability to develop these precise, concise, written, spoken, and visual communication forms for purpose and for audience. What was really great about podcasting, though, was that it encouraged collaboration. So Anna and I created this contract that held group members accountable to each other, and they had to meet on collaborative software, things like WhatsApp, um, Evernote, and WeChat. WeChat. Um, students know this best, right? Just you, They just decide they just do this. Where, which platform they want to meet. So it wasn't really something that, uh, I mean, they told us where they would like to meet, and we just wrote it down in the contract. Absolutely. But it kept them on track. And these are not skills that I think we can assume students just have. They need the practice to develop them. And by developing roles for each of the members in the group, they were also carving out spaces of leadership for themselves. Yeah, so this is definitely the kind of what they learn from project-based learning. And then afterwards, of course, the ability to reflect on their progress and their growth mm -hmm. over time. So Anne, uh, what are some successes that we saw? Did it actually encourage more successful discourse? I absolutely think so. And we're going to listen to an example in a sec, but all of the three solutions that we were hoping for, discourse skills, uh, better writing and better research skills, as well as collaboration skills, all three things were met. I mean, it's not a perfect way to go about addressing it, but it definitely enhanced our students' skills in all three areas. So we want you to listen to a very successful example, uh, just to get a taste of what this sounds like. Welcome to Discourse, an original GBC podcast. This week's episode is called Friendship Matters. My name is Lucas. My name is Prima. And I'm Jesse. Let's get started. On the agenda today, we will be discussing the nature of friendship by analyzing the works of Reverend Brown, What Do We Mean When I Say I Love You Man, and Carlin Flora's Bad Friends. Thanks for tuning in today. So let's start off with Brown's piece. Lucas, would you like to give us a quick summary of the piece? Sure. Just to touch on this quickly, because we do have a lot to get to, through a high degree of pathos with his narrative article, Brown delves into the nature of male friendships. And when he does this, he really draws on personal experiences to demonstrate the way male friendships grow and the way that they change throughout life. Growing up in Atlanta, Brown analyzes the trials and tribulation of the inner circle through crucial stages of development. Did you guys think that his piece was effective? Yeah, I do think his piece was effective. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up before about his pathos and narrative. Uh, definitely useful to achieve his goal. He said in paragraph 11, It's fun to be among the people who speak exactly to shorthand, for whom the same random thing sends you into a nostalgic spiral of inside jokes, throwback references, and obscure rap lyrics. 
I found that to be very touching when I was reading it, uh, just because it really struck home for me. I feel the exact same way when I'm around my friends. It just sends you in this sweet nostalgia of just thinking about when you were all growing up together. It definitely helped the reader connect to his voice because though they were personal, he still left them open and general enough that almost anyone could slap themselves into that scenario. Uh, because most of us, if not all of us, have gone through similar experiences while coming of age. I'd really agree with Prima here. I feel like it was a really effective use of tone. And one of the points that really struck a chord with me was when he said kind of midway through the article that when one of the guys in the group's father died, people dropped whatever they could to support him because for some of us, he was our father too. And with this, I kind of really agree with that because I feel like your friends are in a way kind of raising you as you're growing up as well as the important people who are around them too. And I think it's so funny that you identify with that quote directly because that was actually the quote that resonated with me the most when I was examining Brown's use of pathos. Just to add on to the quote that Jesse brought up, um, I feel like Brown is suggesting at this point in his article that everyone in his group has become so close that they have almost become one. This is most evident when he says, when one grieves, we all grieve. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. So I also really... So, I mean, this goes on for 10 minutes. <laughs> and so, but you can tell the students are immediately, they're, they're answering the first, I mean, it's not the first one, it's the second question they're answering, which is critiquing the piece. So you, I, I don't know if you caught that, but they're talking about the author's ability to connect with audience. They're talking about pathos. They're referring to specific paragraphs. So, I mean, it's a very structured conversation, and you can see that they're unpacking and critiquing, and soon after this, that they're going to answer them their, their own question, where then they get to do something similar and to back it up with their own evidence. So I just want to make a comment about the music here. They were not required to do this. This is a group that really took ownership of their own creativity and went out of their way to do it. We were not marking for their technical skills. Uh, but if you would like your students to incorporate music, there are definitely free music archives that, uh, that we know of, one of them being Gemendo, as well as just free music archives. They offer music that you can use without any copyright infringement. As well as the students want to include music into their podcast, there are programs like Audacity and Garage. They're both free. Garage is specifically for Macs. Um, but again, I mean, I've we've used Audacity. It takes about a day to figure out. It is a little tricky at first, but it's definitely doable. But again, we don't require music, so it's only really for students who really want to go the extra step and say, I want to incorporate music. I want this to sound really professional. Can you help me? And then we would provide them with the YouTube videos um, and the tutorials for them to do that. I think it's also important to think about the ultimate goal of technology because I know that sometimes you know we're thinking, okay, this is in the end of the day a composition course. There's so much to do in here, like we're just talking about with Angelica. So. You know, is technology detracting from the course? We don't want learning new tech to get in the way. Um, and to, in response to that, I mean, this is something we were thinking about as well. I think opinion that one app solves everything, to be honest, because it's such an easy app to use. Uh, so I don't think there's too much tech involved, to be honest. But for, uh, for instructors who are a little bit worried about the technology getting in the way, I think we have to think about the ultimate end goal. and. For me, it's worth it because 
we are looking for ways to improve our students discoursing and writing skills through a platform that is more relevant to them and culturally relevant to them. They're probably engaging with podcasts and media like this in their extracurricular lives anyways. And because we've been finding that the academic paper and the discussion in classrooms were not working, it was worth it. And we've, like we said, we've seen the changes and the positive outcomes that come from this. So for us, it's something that we'd love to try again uh, and that we encourage you to try as well. And so just to pick up on that point, we, do, we did find eventually that uh, the STEMs that we provided did encourage more kind and compassionate uh, conversations in the classroom. So very often people take issues personally. And we saw students reaching out in the middle of class discussions and saying, you know, I think that you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. Hmm. Can I just clarify? You know, we're not attacking you. We're just talking about the issue. And students may not have changed their opinion necessarily after the podcast, but I do know from personal reflections that I received from students um, that their opinions were more informed, that they were able to learn from their peers who actually worked in the restaurant industry to understand, wow, like tipping is not just a tradition. It's actually sustaining my friend and making sure that she can pay her rent. So when I'm in a position of power to employ people, I need to make sure that I'm providing a livable minimum wage. Exactly. What about writing, Anne? Did you feel like it helped with research essays? Yeah, and like I was saying earlier, uh, there was less cherry picking. There was less looking for evidence that just confirmed their own biases. Uh, students during student teacher conferencing were asking, do you think this evidence is enough? Uh, what if I include this counter argument? What about what somebody else said that contradicts what I'm trying to say? Uh, so we know from anecdotal uh, examples as well as from our observations, definitely students were a lot more aware of audience and looking for ways to connect with audience in writing. Absolutely, and I think we saw a lot of bravery in terms of personal narratives and imagery being incorporated eventually in the research essay. So at this point, um, I hope you can see that the, the podcast can be a very pe uh, powerful pedagogical tool in the classroom uh, for both discoursing and for writing and collaboration. And we'd like to open the floor up to questions because uh, I'm sure there's, you know, you're interested about how all this worked out or the logistics of it and whatnot. Hi, I'm yeah, really fascinated by your project and I'd love to try something like that. I was making eyes at my colleague Lynn over there because we teach a class that deals with similar things, unpacking argumentative or persuasive pieces, looking at hot topics. And uh, yeah, I'm just wondering a bit about the logistics. As you said, when would you, how would you start the semester? When or do you teach the tools of pathos and these other things that, that they need in order to learn it? And when do you actually bring in the podcast and start training? Okay, I'll, I'll start. Um, so I think for us, uh, so it's important that the podcast is a first assignment, one of the earlier assignments, because we're, our whole idea is that it would help with writing later on. I'm, I was just telling Paula the other day, I start Logos first class. <laughs> uh, introductions, okay, we're moving on to a Logos workshop. <laughs> so all of the Logos, Pathos, Ethos, it's, I mean, we only have 15 weeks. And it, to prepare them to be able to identify this in other people's writing so that they can, in week 
four or five start podcasting and writing up the script for the podcast, we need to start really early and the weeks go by so fast. You include an APA workshop in there, that takes up a day. So uh, we start really early. Um, and then I would say sometime around week four or five, we, pre we prepare them for actually uh, recording. Yeah, so this is a great uh, kind of segue into one of the challenges that we faced at the initial time that we did this, which was we had them do the written component after the podcast thinking that they would end up changing their opinions. Now, the result of that was that either uh, responses were too scripted or they were not prepared enough. So what we've done, we've changed it up a bit mm -hmm. so that in week one, yes, we begin with rhetorical modes and persuasive writing strategies. Week two, then we give out the essay assignment, so the written component first. Week two and three, now we're chunking the assignment. So they're just doing the reading, analyzing, reading, analyzing. Outlined by week four, week five, they write their essay. Week six, then they're producing the podcast. So by week six, now they have formulated an individualized opinion that is valid and justified from their essay, and they're ready to discourse. And I just want to add there that uh, the way Sarik and I prepare, because you got to keep in mind, they are, we're preparing them to produce a podcast, but every week we're pumping out podcasts too uh, because we need to prepare them with relevant readings. So because every every semester we switch up the readings a little bit depending on the group, uh, every week we prepare our podcast episode for the readings that they are working on and practicing with so that they have the option of tuning in to listen to the podcast that we've made on a reading that they already know so that they know, okay, uh, week five, six comes along, I'm making something similar, but with this reading. Okay. Yeah, so that's how we scaffold, uh, scaffold that. Okay, great. There's a lot of planning, totally doable. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank yeah. you. I have actually a question for each. Should mm -hmm. I? Yes. Just one at a time? Yeah. Okay. Um, for you guys, I in our department, I'm from Humber in English, um, we talk about this idea of making thinking visible. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the podcast is a great way to uh, demonstrate that, especially with students, right? Making their ideas about critical thinking and how they see different texts visible, in this case through uh, the audio podcast. I'm wondering with this idea of... Um, you know, inter interactivity or the actual dialogue that comes and the actual real exchange of ideas through kind of a one-dimensional approach that the podcast kind of offers. So my, I guess my question would be, do you guys see great value, and I think there is, um, in having focus on the students listening to one another's dialogue almost more than creating, not that the creation part isn't important because of course it's that whole first step. In addition to having your narrative through podcasts being listened to by students, but having their own narratives, which I think would help with the ideas exchange and actually produce the those outcomes and the successes that we're thinking about, like collaboration, like exchanging ideas, like um, you know accepting diverse opinions, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know, this is a pilot project, and so technically, no, no, I know. And so technically, this is only the second time we're doing it this semester. So when we first did it, we had, a lot of our colleagues were like, like, are you, is this gonna be okay? Like, <laughs> like, what are you gonna do? And then we were like, okay. So we brought this out, we were very well organized, and a lot of our students were 
um, anxious and really nervous about the idea of us sharing their podcast. So the ones that, so we said, oh, wow, okay, so as a pilot project, we can't be forcing people yet. Um, so we asked students that did volunteer to share their podcast if they, if they don't mind. Like, and so a few select groups did. Um, and this time around, we are making it part of their mark, unfortunately, that they do share their ideas. Um, and we've also learned from Jones that she uses podcasting as a way to rehearse your research question and then field feedback in the classroom. So there, it's so flexible. There's so many different ways to go with it. Mm-hmm. And so we're still experimenting. Yeah, so this time around, we're going to try a thing where students are required as part of their marks, 5%, their feedback to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to do it. I think Sarika's in the process of putting it together through Padlet, which I mentioned briefly earlier, but it's kind of like a virtual bulletin board. And students can upload files or links and everybody. It's like a separate private classroom setting when you could see visually what people are posting and part of their mark is then to give honest and constructive feedback to one another so that way they're getting the learning here they're now the listening audience is not just the instructor it's the entire class right right so that's an extra added uh, component so yeah we're experimenting it with it right now but definitely I think there's a huge value in getting students to listen to each other's Absolutely. and about a topic that they didn't do Right. So this is critical too because yeah. we want them to develop that awareness of audience mm-hmm. so they have to make sure it's clear. Absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, thank you so much for this amazing presentation, the two of you. And um, I'm so happy to see that the content has seeped into other parts of the college. So teaching um, communications in community services and sociolinguistics, this is my world, so I'm really comfortable in it. And sometimes I forget how non-non-stream it is. <laughs> so it's really nice um, that you're able to address that. I also love the civil engagement um, traits, the nouns, and they fit so nicely with indigenous teaching. The seven grandfathers' teachings are so close, they're almost word for word. So I can see this really meshing with other um, different frameworks that we're trying to promote in our classroom. Um, Instructors have a lot of responsibility in the classroom. Um, We are moderators. Um, We are also making sure that the students learn and and, uh, meet the outcomes of the class. Um, However, um, sometimes just entering the classroom can be a barrier. So for example, I consider myself as a a white middle class, cisgender, native speaker, hetero person with a non-visible disability. I'm a barrier when I walk into my class here. Um, And so uh, because the majority of the people in this room, and I think it's representative of college teachers in Ontario, um, are are from dominant culture, and because the textbooks that we're required to use are usually um, reinforcing dominant culture, I know that's changing, uh, you know, ever so slowly based on my reviews and constant um, urgings. Um, How does this... Uh, play out. For example, how can people of of dominant culture, when they enter the classroom and and we want to make a bridge instead of a barrier, how how do we handle that? And um, uh, how does this instructor counter um, all this dominant culture, which is, you know, perpetuated in our society? And how do even students of dominant culture feel that they have even a right? And how do they feel like they're not appropriating voices when they try to um, advocate for marginalized people. Absolutely. 
tough question too. That's a great question <laughs> though. And I'm, question. I'm glad that you bring it up. And I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be very personal with my classroom stories. Mm-hmm. Um, we are obviously people of color. And when we walk into the classroom, the dynamic is different, whether people wanna acknowledge it or not. And we are women. And again, the dynamic is different whether we wanna be, we want, whether we wanna recognize it or not. And I think I can't divorce my political identity, my social identity from the classroom. And if a microaggression comes out, I know having been a 17, 18 year old person of color before, I'm probably, that student's not gonna say anything, but they're gonna feel it. And the responsibility is on me to say something. And I understand that. I also understand that a lot of people have inherited this responsibility, this privilege that they never asked for and they they weren't even aware of. And now there's this sense of accusations. And I've been very honest with students and said, you know, this is a safe space and I understand that some of the topics are gonna make you uncomfortable. And what I want you to do, and I hope you feel comfortable either one-on-one or in this classroom, is feel that you can talk about those feelings honestly. And I have had students talk honestly. You know, I'm white and I, I don't get it. Right, and I can see the pain on some other students when, when, I he- when they hear those things, but I think that these things need to be felt, they need to be heard, and we need to say, I understand why you don't get it. I also did not get certain things, but you know what I did? I made friends, and I got out of my comfort zone, and I reached out to people I didn't know, and we go to George Brown, and this is the most diverse city in the whole country, and yeah, it's gonna be hard, but you know what also helps? Who do you follow on social media? Are you following people who look differently than you, that think differently than you, act differently than you? I ask these questions because yes, there's you know, a lot of social pressure, but there's also um, less at-risk ways of engaging with other cultures and learning and appreciating and getting comfortable. And having those honest discussions, like our tagline is literally think deeply, connect honestly, and we mean it. Yeah, I mean, When I do this kind of stuff, you always run the risk of this teacher becoming the controversy, Mm -hmm. right? When you introduce controversial topics, you can become the controversy. And uh, like Sirika has mentioned, because uh, because like I same thing, I can't divorce uh, my social political identity. Uh, It's I cannot assume neutrality. It's part of my identity, and I'm I can't fake it either. So, uh, you know, I. In the beginning when we first started this, and this is why we started the whole podcasting, was because we were so discouraged by the kind, the kind of resistance and the, yeah, the just, oh, that's just your opinion comment, or that's just a biased perspective. Um, and the dismissal that we, we experience as instructors, but also the way that our students are treating some of the content that we were curating for them. So I think it's a tough, tough, um, situation but you know I think and you know some of the I mean if you look at my my comments that I get from my students at the end the teacher evaluation I know I know I take them way too seriously but I definitely got comments like I think she should just be a sociology teacher (laughs) this is not like English um uh you know comments like that but I still you know I get discouraged but then I still feel like we have to talk about these things we we have to still bring it into uh, the classroom and I almost feel like communications for students who are not taking electives that have to do with social justice uh, 
they may go through college never talking about microaggression, never talking about social justice, or the importance of developing social relationships with people who do not look like you. So communications is probably one of the best areas to do this, uh, just in case students don't take those social justice electives. That, you know, it'd be great if they did, but if they don't, if they're just focused on, you know, if you're taking hospitality and you're just focused on entering to the workforce, you may never come across a course that does something like this. So I think communications as a course is a, college English as a course is a great uh, platform to in, include these kinds of marginalized voices through content, through readings. And if you as an instructor feel uncomfortable because you feel like I don't want to like get too worked up or involved in this in case, you know, students may throw things at us, um, you just never know, right, when you're standing in front of the class. I think what you can do is to de-escalate de the situation, is to focus on the readings. Focus on let's talk about and let's view fairly and let's empathize with this reader's uh, this writer's perspective. Let's talk about why they may have the biases they do. And the way I always try to teach it to my students is bias is not necessarily a bad thing. We all have biases. Bias can be dangerous when it starts to distort the big picture, but we all come with a certain worldview based on our culture, our upbringing, our family, our religion. Like we can't, we don't have a choice. We can't say we're neutral or objective. So, you know, talking about the text, I think can also be a way to, for anything that may be personal to, to be de-escalated. De Absolutely, and I was just gonna say that Sometimes it can feel like they're attacking you, but you have to push it off and say, why is this issue even controversial to begin with? Is it because we have different values? Is it because of information available to us? Right, so engage in the critical thinking skills. And what are the concepts that we're dealing with? Do we have different definitions of what justice means, for example? So we have to push it off. I've also, we've had students question the credibility of authors. But like, like some of the writers who like, our professors at Cornell. <laughs> yeah, so they're like really valid arguments, but students be like, this is just biased. <laughs> exactly. So and we got that a lot. So what we have to do on the instructor side is say, why do you think they're biased? Well, let's look them up online. Where do they teach? What are their credentials? Do you still think they're biased? Right, and then just to unpack how they construct ethos, logos, pathos, then also they can see, hey, this is a valid argument. And if it's, a, if it's presented to us with sound reasoning and rational evidence, maybe even though we may not necessarily agree, it is worthy of consideration. And last point, sometimes we enforce what's at stake. So when we talk about cultural appropriation and the use of the, uh, you know, the indigenous headdress at Coachella, we also look at what is at stake when we do that? Who, what is the actual effect on a person's identity? And so CBC has really great short documentaries to, to facilitate this conversation and to show the other side and bring other voices into the classroom. So um, I think that for many people in the room, um, they might be a little bit hesitant, I'm thinking, to, to try this. Um, so in my classes, I'm often the only white person in the room. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just used to, when I go into the classroom, using the pronoun we mm -hmm. and um, trying to, again, break down that barrier um, so that we're all questioning the dominant culture. And I think if you go into that in the classroom with that in mind, that can really help build solidarity um, and trust. 
But for those people who want to make this the course in the whole student's college experience where they can question these things, I think it'll be really hard in a, in, I'm just imagining in a white dominant um, culture classroom. Um, and so I think maybe, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure what to say about that other than just going into the classroom, questioning the dominant culture, which is going to be made so much more easy when our textbooks start to do that too. Um, also, uh, it would be great to argue for some of these on to be course outcomes. I know. This is what we really need. Um, we need to have indigenous ways of knowing and being at least recognized as well as uh, different worldviews. And so I think we have a long way to go with administration. So with administration, we have um, some work to do and with, um, with publishers. So thank you so much. our presentation at call. We want to say a very warm thank you to the Faculty of Communication at George Brown College for all the support and encouragement we've had for this pilot project. We do hope this project encourages and inspires other instructors to also think divergently in the classroom. Thank you as well to our students featured in this episode. That's Jessica, Prima, and Lucas. Fantastic job. As well as for our audience at call who asked us such great questions. Thank you for thinking deeply and connecting honestly with us.